Welcome everybody today to Sober. This is Stories of Badgers and Power Recovery. Now this is a podcast with Wisconsin Voices for Recovery and my name is Aaron Claiborne. I'm the outreach specialist for the Engagement to Recovery program with Wisconsin Voices for Recovery. I am a certified recovery coach trainer and a certified naloxone trainer. Wisconsin Voices for Recovery is a peer-run movement that helps unite people in recovery, their families, professionals, and allies. Now, as a diverse coalition of recovery advocates, we serve as a statewide network to link services and support to those in need. Now, joining me today is Amanda Rodriguez, and Amanda is the Community Programs and Integration Manager at Community Medical Services located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Welcome, Amanda, and please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Hi, everybody. So, um, as he said, I'm Amanda. I work for Community Medical Services as their Community Programs and Integration Manager. I know, big, hefty title. So that means I'm in charge of going out into the community, breaking down silos, um, be looking where are individuals that need treatment or individuals um, that are ready in treatment and looking at the needs and helping them get better access to treatment, um, recovery, and just be treated fair. That's awesome. Awesome stuff. All right. So I'm going to get into some questions right away uh, during this podcast. And I'd like to begin with asking you about your personal experience with drugs and alcohol. Yeah, sure. So um, always, I grew up in the city of Milwaukee, um, South Side through and through, 27th and Mitchell, um, went to parochial schools, and then um, my parents sent us to South Division. So in there, that really opened my eyes um, to alcohol and marijuana use. Um, I was never around any other really hardcore drugs, per se. Um, I knew my buddies were doing something because they would close the door and tell me not to come in. But, you know, um, they just had enough respect for that. Um, I did a lot of binge drinking as a teenager, uh, you know, during school hours. And then, you know, go home and just hope that my parents wouldn't know I was drinking. Um, but as far as any other drugs, I just, I just never had the desire to use them. All right. Okay. But that, uh, transferring schools definitely exposed you to some, some different things. Oh, it was a complete culture shock. You know, when you go from your eighth grade class, only having seven students to going to a high, an inner city high school that, you know, you, you're like your class is hundreds. Right. And so it's just was. It's a complete shock for me. Um, and it just was like, it was more of like a great opening, like of, wow, so this is what school is. This is awesome. So I'm a social bee. So it was, it was, it was a lot of fun and different personalities and stuff. So I like that stuff. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Get to know some other people. All right. Um, so now I'd like to ask you, uh, what barriers did you encounter finding recovery in the Latinx community? So some of the barriers that I see is that for one, there's not enough people that understand um, the Hispanic culture, right? The Latinx community. There's not enough folks that understand um, like why we don't open up and why we don't talk about our personal lives. And I think that um, affects somebody's treatment greatly because then they think that we're being you know, guarded or that we're not ready for treatment or, 
you know, we're hiding something. And that's not the case. It's just we're trying to figure out how to navigate between two cultures, two different worlds, you know, our Latinx community. And then, you know, the American community where it's, you know, no, it's safe to talk about your feelings and talk about what's going on at home. So I say that that that's one of the things that I have encountered. Yeah, that is that is very uh, uh, relatable to me and uh, as far as it goes and that aspect that barrier of communication is uh, is a real thing. It's really there. And uh, I, I totally understand what you're saying. Okay. Um, so I'd like to ask you now about uh, experiencing stigma. So before you began your recovery journey, what type of stigma did you uh, experience professionally, personally, and how, how did it impact you? So I would say, you know, how did stigma affect me personally? Um, I would just say, just going back to the question of Latinx, right? So, you know, the stigma, there's just so much, right? Like within within our own culture of mental health of that you shouldn't go and talk to people, right? That you're telling other people your business and dealing with, with that part of it. Um, the stigma of, you know, there's, there's getting treatment is bad. Um, that that's only for, you know, the American folks, that's not for us. Um, that if you go to treatment, it makes you look weak. It doesn't make you appear strong. Um, so I would say in, in that regard is what I would deal with personally, because my recovery is more like my mental health and trauma story recovery versus drug use recovery. Um, but we know they're both intertwined. Um, so that's kind of what I dealt with a lot of, or that, you know, you were a binge drinker. So therefore that's not really you're not somebody who uses substances or I didn't fit the criteria. So there was that as well Okay. for me, I would say, and then for professionally, you know, working in a medication assisted treatment program that, you know, offers methadone, nobody wants to work with you. Right. So when you're out there trying to break down these walls and break down these barriers, everyone thinks that, Oh, you're at a methadone program. Your patients don't, your patients don't get better. And, you know, they have this perception that, you know, the liquid handcuffs that we're trading one drug for another. In so many ways we are, but we're trading one drug that is not controlled by by any type of regulatory standard to a drug that is, right? And a drug that will get somebody sober. It's no different than giving somebody um, insulin or you, you having to use an inhaler because your lungs need that, right? So, why are we treating these medications differently? So I encounter a lot of stigma of, of working with folks. And also people don't understand, oh, you work with people with substance use? Aren't they all losers? Or aren't they all trying to get one over on you? And I'm like, no, that's far from the truth. Let me talk to you about that. Let me educate you about that. This is what they're going through. And then they start to understand and open up their eyes more. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> that stigma is such a judgmental aspect that's a you know it, it really causes a lot of detachment for individuals who are seeking recovery nobody wants to be yeah. judged people are trying to better themselves mm -hmm. and with all these stigmatizing you know derogatory comments it's not helpful um 
So I'm glad no, the way not at all. Fine. I mean, and it takes a lot of courage to say you need help. Oh, yeah. Right. And so stigma affects that big time because if you're coming in and they want help and then they're faced with, you know, just judgment, they're they're not going to get the treatment that they need, you know, or somebody, you know, they're trying to figure out and navigate through the system and can't. And, you know, they're going to think, well, you're just trying to take advantage of the system because you have a substance use disorder. No, I'm not trying to take advantage of it. I'm trying to figure out how I can get the most benefit out of whether it's my insurance or my time, right? Yeah. How can I get the most benefit? And that way I can find a path of recovery, whatever that looks like to me. Yeah, benefit of recovery for a, a positive progress. Correct. Yeah, awesome, awesome. All right, next question. How, how did the stigma associated with substance use disorder deter you or someone, you know, or prevent you or someone, you know, from seeking recovery? Oh, because then they come off as weak. And, you know, for us, you know, I, I can speak for me and, you know, in my um, Latinx culture is that you come off as weak and people who use, who use drugs, you're, you're like the sucia, you're the dirty people right? You are the weak. You, you guys, you know, you, you just need to pull up your bootstraps and get it together, right? If you quit using drugs and that's it, you, if you quit using alcohol, your life will get better. So it's huge, right? Because then, you know, that's why people um, are so silent about their treatment and so silent about recovery and silent about their drug use is because they, you know, if they tell their family members, their family members are going to look at them differently. Or if they t even tell their employer, right? Now their oh, yeah. employer, if they're a cashier, they're going to make sure, okay, why was that till really $3.73 short, yeah. you know, versus if it was somebody else who didn't have substance use disorder, oh, you didn't know how to give change. We need you to take a training on how to give change, right? So right. you start looking at that differently um, and you don't want to be looked upon differently. Yeah, yeah, it'll definitely deter you from, uh, you know, doing the things that you know you can do based upon the, the judgment and the stigma from other people. That is definitely a detrimental thing, mm -hmm. even if it is something as minimal as a, you know, account being a dollar too short. Correct. All right. Next question. We're going to switch gears and focus on our attention right now on the community impact of AODA. So the first question I'd like to ask you is, uh, living in a community or environment where drugs and alcohol were readily available, um, what was peer pressure like for you uh, to get involved with drugs and alcohol? So for me, it was like, I mean, everything was always out in the open for me, right? Um, when I would go hang out with my friends, I mean, I remember, you know, I mean, our basements were probably only eight feet tall, right? And we used to have beer lined up all across the ba basement that you could barely, you could like barely see it. It would it just hit the roof of the, you know, the, or the ceiling of the basement. And, you know, it was always that thing of, you know, alcohol was more, come on, take shots. Oh, let's try this. And then all the different concoctions and, you know, and so that, in a sense, you could feel the peer pressure of that, of, you know, like, oh, it looks like they're having fun. I want to have fun, too, and just start drinking, you know, and 
and like you know when they would pass the joints around right and I just just never liked that but you know for other folks you could see you could just see that culture and wanting to get like just you could see somebody can get somewhere really bad really fast right and if you weren't drinking that night then they would say what's wrong with you why aren't you drinking Right. right. And so you're just like, well, because I drank so much yesterday, I don't want to drink tonight. Jeez, get off my butt. Right. Right. So um, it's just so readily available in that sense. But like now when I go out in the community and I'm just out here doing these different pop ups and stuff and you just see drug deals happening in front of you. Right. Yeah. It's just it's heartbreaking and also a little bit dangerous in two, in, in for two reasons. One, because then I have evil thoughts in my brain. Like a transaction happened right in front of me and I was walking past and I really like wanted to like hit the crack out of that person's hands and go running. Like <laughs> I had this visual yeah. in my head of popping the crack out of their hands and, and stomping on it and then go running. But you know, it's right, like a little yeah. evil thought of mine, but I'm like, okay, I probably would have gotten killed. But it's also not safe because, you know, that's where robberies can happen. So if we're trying to heal a community and you got folks on every corner selling drugs, how we, how do we stop that? Right? You know, right. how can we make that happen? What do we do? How can we make our voice heard? How can we sound just like, you know, the, you know our Caucasian counterparts sound that they can get drugs not in their community? How can we stop it from happening in our community? Right. So it's just figuring out who those players need to be and just being really, really persistent and sticking to them like bees on honey, you know, and just this needs to stop. And once we can get this to stop, then we'll see less and less drug use in our neighborhoods. Yeah, no doubt. Definitely. Definitely. So that was that was some good information. That that could be a whole discussion within itself. So um, now I'm going to ask you and you kind of already answered it. Uh, I want to ask you to describe what the availability of illicit street drugs looks like in your community. Oh, I mean, like I, like I said, I was even at a community event that was put together by the police department and we purposely targeted this empty parking lot um, because we knew um, drugs were being sold out of this gas station, right? Not out of it, but out of the parking lot of the gas station and the owners weren't doing anything about it. And we knew we were needed there. So I am a trainer of Narcan. I was there. Um, we had Umos there who can give out clean syringes. Um, we had um, just a lot of different community partners giving out food. Um, so the police were there. And surprisingly, um, you know, more people always think that the police, you know, oh, there are bad people. Like people won't engage. No, it was the complete opposite. You know, the folks were coming by and they were asking, hey, what are you doing? Why are you here? Why are the horses here? Um, and we were telling them, hey, we're just doing a pop-up. We want the community to be healthier. How can we make that healthier? And so um, I found it to be very enlightening and that, you know, that they're seeing the, the, the police in a different fashion. Yeah. You know, um, but it was... It's just heartbreaking. Like I said, you could see the transactions going on. You can see um, the sex workers um, getting in and out of cars. It was just, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. All right. So now I'd like to ask you, what do you think perpetuates the cycle uh, of the distribution or sale of illicit street drugs in your community? Why does this keep happening? Why do 
people continue to sell drugs? I think it's because we're not finding our voice, right? If you go into different suburban communities, you know, the drug sales happen, but they're more hidden, right? So why isn't that, why can't we stop that from being so out in the open inner cities on the north and south side of Milwaukee, right? So why, why can't those communities um, function just like our suburban communities? The, the cycle is never going to end, right. right? Because it's not going to end and we can get better, but we, what can we do in these impoverished communities to, to elicit change, to make that happen? You know, they can board up houses, but nobody wants to live on a block with six board up houses. It looks scary and that's not how you want to raise your children and a family. So it's, again, finding those elected officials, getting involved with you know, whatever you need to do and finding the right voice, you know, and just advocating and figuring out how can I make my community healthier? That's how you break a cycle. Um, and again, it's, it's constant, it's repetitive. It's just, if you say, if somebody tells, you no, they're like, okay, I'm going to find another way until you say yes. Like getting out there and getting all this drug sales to stop. Right. That's what we need to do. Yeah, definitely. Try to be part of the solution. And it's, it's a, a lot to do in the communities. Correct. Yeah, totally. I get that. So now, what do you think perpetuates the cycle of drug addiction in your community? I, I, I can understand that Ooh. those two things are uh, totally related. The continued illicit, illicit mm -hmm. sale, sale of illicit street drugs in the community. Yeah, I think they go hand in hand, right? But I also think the availability of treatment centers, mm. right? There's not yeah. enough treatment centers. And if you can't always go send all your kids and family members to Sands Resort right. in Florida, right? And then bring them back to inner city and expect them to be sober. So we need more treatment centers in our community that's gonna help folks find their path to recovery, but also show them like, you know, we need like transitional living to slowly integrate them back into that environment. Cause you can't put somebody into treatment and then say, Oh, there you go. Go back home. That home may be the very reason why they're using, you know? So it's, I think that our system, the way we set it up, we're setting up folks to fail here, go to detox three days, detox off drugs. What are they going to do after that? Right. Yeah. You know, there's there's no aftercare plan, right? So we're contributing to that cycle of somebody's substance use, and this is where these funds need to be go to is figuring out. Let's get some tiny houses. Let's. We need more housing. We need more transitional living. We need more residential treatment. We need more map providers. We need to make treatment more accessible for people, so that way people can get sober or find that some sort of path of recovery, right? So if they're using four drugs and they're down to three, wonderful. Let's applaud that. Whereas I think that's another thing that perpetuates to, uh, that contributes to addiction as or substance use disorder as well is that people are like, well, they're still using drugs. So they're not in recovery. Okay. But they used to use four. Now oh. they're down to three. That's a huge, that's, that's like, oh my gosh. Right. So let's how what can we do to get them down to two? What can we do to get them down to one? You know, and working with that individual, meeting where meeting them where they're at, right? And 
just that's the key. Yeah, definitely. That two or three days will not work, uh, you know, when it comes to substance use disorder uh, and addiction. There needs to be a, an extended amount of time uh, to work with the whole person. Um, mm-hmm. I love the, the fact that you mentioned transitional living facilities and the increase of uh, t- treatment centers in the community, in our communities. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that's a great place to start. All right. Yeah, it is. And the availability of Narcan, right? Oh, yeah. You and I are both trainers. And how many meetings have we went to and we trained and they had no idea they can go to their public health department and get Narcan. They had no idea they can go into a Walgreens or CVS and pick, you know, that there's this open prescription for them to go get it. So it's just making that more known, letting people know of the current resources and helping them navigate. It's just, there's so many barriers, but you know, we're out here to kind of just continue to, you know, give them that education and let them know there's help out there. Yeah, those attempts to remove those barriers. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, harm reduction strategies are so important, you know, battling addiction. Um, I do like that analogy um, of when a person's on, you know, four different types of drugs, they move down to three. That's a a harm reduction strategy that potentially can save a life, right? You know, get them down to two, one, and then none. Um, Progress, you know, like everybody knows, progress, not perfection. So great, great answer, good stuff. Okay, I'm going to ask you, and I think you kind of answered it, uh, but I'll still ask you this question and maybe you can elaborate more on it. So why do you think it continues to be an issue in uh, communities of color, especially? communities of color I don't know right now in my head I want to say because it's not happening you know I want to go to what everyone else is saying it's because you know our folks our people us we're not we don't hold those seats right we have very limited seats in just in those political seats that we need right or you know that can make some change happen, you know, and it, it usually takes, you know, somebody's somebody to die or something to happen of somebody who is influential for that you to see that change. Right. right. And I could easily hop on that bandwagon, but I don't understand what's the difference. Okay. It is just as hard to put a treatment center in our city as it is in a suburban community. Right. Okay. Because it has to be, accepted within that community and if it's not accepted how are you going to have a treatment center because the the, you know there's stigmas associated with that right you're bringing all those addicts into our neighborhood (laughs) no we're not Mm -hmm. they actually live in this neighborhood and that's why we're here bringing the treatment center so it's we need more buy-in and i and i think also too it's it it's harder for our communities as well because we see the crime, we see the substance use, and we know that they need treatment, but we don't want them in our neighborhood getting treatment because we don't we don't see, we want to turn a blind eye to it. So how do we stop turning that blind eye? You know, and then there's that you know, when you think about it on the corporation side, maybe corporations don't want to open up treatment centers in those communities because it's not safe for employees to be there. So you have to look at, it's a very, just a loaded question, 
but I, it's always been that way. If you if you look at health, the healthcare systems, you know, there's really not a lot of hospitals or urgent cares or mom and pop, you know, doctor shops in in the inner cities. You see them more in in the suburban communities, and you can say it's because of color, right? I don't want to treat those folks. Well, why not? And and a lot of it is too, is because we have a higher population of folks on, on state insurance. So not a lot of providers will accept the state insurance. Or if they do accept the state insurance, they only accept limited amount of folks. Okay. And so in, they have to do that in order for that business to be sustainable because the reimbursement rates aren't, aren't the best. So then you have folks, you know, at treatment centers, I know we are, we have folks that are advocating for those those rates to go up, right? So then that way we don't limit it, but other organizations do. And so it's a frustrating, you know, cycle of like, how do we stop this? How can we make it better? And again, it's just going out there and, and meeting with your policymakers and trying to figure out how you can make that change happen. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. All right. Now we're going to go to reflecting on challenges to recovery in the Latinx communities. So now circling back to your personal uh, journey um, and recovery, what have you learned that inspired you to continue maintaining your recovery? What inspires me? Well, the obvious is my granddaughter right? She's the light of my life. So she's, she inspires me and I do everything for her, just like I did everything for my children. Um, and she inspires me because I don't know what her future holds as well. So I always treat like, I don't know any of these people in the community that I'm helping, but I treat them like they're my loved one because they are somebody's loved one. So hope inspires me. Positivity inspires me seeing people more open to talk about recovery, right? And then their journey to recovery, that inspires me. Um, seeing, you know, changes happen within the fire department, within the police department, when it comes to people using substances, that inspires me. And, you know, yes, it took a lot of no's in order to finally get your yes, yeses within those departments, but just seeing the changes in adult drug, drug treatment court and, just seeing people making some sort of positive change, that's what motivates me and inspires me. Yeah, definitely. That that uh, increase in advocacy, um, especially from those, like, for example, police department, fire departments, who uh, weren't necessarily always, uh, you know, accommodating, accommodating to individuals who were mm -hmm. suffering. So, yeah, that, that is definite inspiration. Um, of course, the youth, uh, you know, they're, struggling with a lot of things that, you know, yeah. puberty, peer pressure, you know, <laughs> social media, uh, images. So yeah, it's, it's a lot. Oh yeah. It's a lot. Like my son, you know, my son's an adult. I mean, he's 21, but still like, I don't like on my Snapchat, I don't get anything drug related. You know, I don't get, you know, they don't show me different things, but on his Snapchat, you see it all. They, they have like, they glorify the different types of strands of marijuana and the Skittles fentanyl and, or the fentanyl that looks like Skittles and, you know, and all of that stuff. And he's like, mom, look at this. Isn't this crazy? I was like, yeah, that's insane. 
you know? And so it's just, it's heartbreaking how, what, what our world has changed to, you know? And the, you know, and so you just, it's frustrating. You just kind of just report, I told my son to report it and try to get it to stop. But like with the police department, they know they can't, you know, they can't continue to arrest folks. You can't arrest your way through substance use. You can't. And so what can, you know, they're like, okay, so how can I get Bobby better? How can I stop arresting Bobby? Oh, let me call Amanda. That girl, she, she was pretty persistent, a little crazy. Let me call her and see if I can see if, if she can help Johnny, you know, because maybe if Johnny, if she talks to Johnny, she can plant a seed. And that's what we want, right? We want that change because we know Johnny's going to continue to do illegal things to support his drug habit, you know, so let's, let's get Johnny help. Yeah. Once he gets that help from uh, substance use disorder, he'll, you know, stop doing the crimes and we'll stop arresting them. That's how that works. That's that domino effect, man. That's so important and valuable. All right. Okay. So now I would like to ask you, what advice would you give a person uh, in the Latinx community who is battling addiction? Just know there's people out here that care and there's people out here that want to help you. And it's okay to ask for help. That does not make you weak. In fact, it makes you stronger because you're willing to acknowledge I have a problem and I need help. Oh, yeah. We're not going to say, oh, we need to call your mom. We need to call your wife. We need to call your husband. No, that takes time. And when you're ready, we will help you guide you through and be there to coach you when you want to open up to your family about what's going on in your what's going on in your addiction or mental health recovery. Just know we're out here and we want to help you. Yeah, definitely. The help is out there. We want to give it. We want you to mm-hmm. accept it. We want you to ask for it. All right. So now, same question, uh, but to someone seeking recovery. So how would you? Uh, how about some advice for someone in the Latinx community seeking recovery? Seeking it, it's scary. And we know it's going to be scary, okay? And it's going to be scary to walk into that door of a treatment center or to call a therapist, okay? We're there to help you and not shame you, not to make you feel guilty for, you know, waiting to get to get into treatment. Um, but we know it's scary. And we know it takes a lot of courage for you to admit you have a problem. But again, we're here to help you. And there's so many individuals in the community. There's individuals with lived experience that are called peer supports, recovery support coordinators. They will help you. And they they want to help you. Isn't that crazy that they want to help you versus, oh, I'm getting paid to help you. No, they actually want to help you. Right. They want to share their story with you. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yes, it has, there has to be an understanding of, uh, you know, what what you what you're going through. I've gone mm-hmm. through already, uh, so I, I totally get it. There is no judgment. Um, just no, there's none, and it's scary. We're telling you to give up your best friend. Your best friend is your drug. That's the thing that made you feel good when when times were tough. It made you feel good when even when you were happy because you got a job and oh, I'm gonna go drink a bottle of wine or. Ooh, I'm gonna go pick me up some Coke right now because that was amazing. You know, we get it. You know, we're we're telling you to get rid of that coping mechanism, but we're here to help you. Definitely, definitely. All good stuff. I really appreciate it. So I have one final question. Um, 
during this podcast. And I'd like to ask you, is there anything else you'd like to say um, that we haven't discussed today? I think that you covered everything very well. Um, I always like to say to people is don't lose hope. Okay. Do not lose hope that there's going to be a lot of doors that close. There's going to be a lot of no's before you get your yeah, right? Finding a path to recovery, being an active addiction, um, it's scary. And we wait for somebody to tell us no, because then it's like, see, I told you I can't get treatment. And then you go up on and continue to use or continue to lay in your bed depressed, right? right. So right. just just don't give up. And there is light at the end of that tunnel. Okay, even if it's a little, little tiny light, there's a light. And the more that you advocate for your own well-being, the bigger that light will get. Definitely. That's very, very good uh, information to, to hand out. To I think you answered everything uh, very well and pretty thoroughly. Uh, I know there could have been a lot more discussion uh, based on your answers, but that would be a completely different interview, which would be much needed as well. <laughs> so uh, I like that information you provided. Very descriptive and very, um, you know, just straightforward. I, I really appreciate it. No, thank you for having me, Aaron. It was definitely our pre- pleasure. All right, everybody, please look for more Amanda's interview uh, podcast and other podcasts from Wisconsin Voices for Recovery. Uh, Thank you all for joining and have a wonderful rest of your day.